The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John, in the third chapter and verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15 in the third chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We are continuing our consideration of this great and most important incident in the life and ministry of our blessed Lord and Savior, namely the account which is given in this third chapter of the Gospel according to St. John of his interview with and his dealings with this man Nicodemus, who was a teacher, one of the masters of Israel, speaking from the natural standpoint, a great man and a very notable man. And we're looking at it because it is one of these priceless pictures which we have here and there in the Gospels of our Lord himself taking the part of an evangelist and dealing with a soul, showing to a man the way of salvation. Now I say it is of very exceptional value for that reason. For the whole purpose of this meeting is to deal with this very question of salvation. This is not an entertainment. God forbid that it should be. The world has its entertainments. And an entertainment is not meant to do anything more than to give us a comfortable, happy feeling and enjoyment for the time being. We are here and this word is preached because it is concerned with this great question of our eternal destiny. We are here in time, but we are occupied when we meet in the house of God, not only with time, but with eternity. And the Bible makes it so plain and clear that we are in one of two positions, that we are either in the kingdom of God or else we are not in the kingdom of God. And that nothing is so important as to know that we are in the kingdom of God. The responsibility is therefore tremendous, not only in the one who is given the privilege of speaking, but also in all who listen. It was our Lord himself who said on one occasion, Take heed how ye hear. There is such a thing as a lazy listening, as well as a lazy preaching. So if we realize that we are here concerned with such momentous matters, well then I say we shall all listen for our lives, and especially as we see our Lord himself dealing with this very situation and showing this man the truth. Now you remember that our Lord himself has divided up the matter into two main sections. He says there are certain things which can be described as earthly things. There are others which are heavenly now, what he means by the earthly is that every man has got to realize that coming into this realm, we come into a realm that is absolutely different from everything that the world can ever provide for us. 
We are here in a realm where all our natural faculties and propensities are not sufficient. Here we are entering the spiritual realm. And we have to realize that at the very beginning. Because if we come here to these things with our natural minds, with our ordinary reason and understanding and ability, well, we'll make nothing of it at all. That is the greatest hindrance. We have to start by realizing that it's altogether different, which our Lord, you remember, has put in these words, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, leave alone enter it. Must be entirely renewed by the Spirit of God. And he's gone on to elaborate that. But this man, Nicodemus, great, able, teacher as he was, couldn't understand it. Keeps on saying, how, how, how can these things be? How is it possible? Can a man enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? How can these things be? And then you remember our Lord went on to say, as we showed you last Sunday evening, Nicodemus, he said, if you don't understand what I've already been saying, how can you possibly understand the things that I've now got to say to you? That's only the beginning, that's the preliminary, that's the introduction, that's the thing that is, as it were, almost within your own reach and grasp. If you can't follow that, how can you follow what I'm now going to say? But I'm telling it to you, I must expound it to you. You've misunderstood me so completely. His object, you see, the whole time is to get Nicodemus to see that he's got to let go of his own abilities and he must cease to rely upon them. He's got to become a listener. Very difficult thing for a teacher. But he's got to become as a little child like everybody else. Here is a realm in which he's no better than the greatest ignoramus in the land. He's got to come right down. He's got to just sit and listen. He's got to stop asking his questions. He's got to believe. It's not irrational for this reason that we're in a realm above reason. It's supernatural. And reason alone should dictate to us that in such a realm, our natural reason is obviously inadequate. So our Lord goes on to press this point upon him. And you remember, he puts it like this. He begins to talk about himself and his own person. He says, Nicodemus, you know, you and I are talking about things that belong to the realm of heaven. We are talking about God. We are talking about his being and his nature. We are talking about men and how men can have communion and contact with God. What do you know about things like that? Have you ascended up into the heavens? Do you know the mind of God, the mind of the Lord? Are you, as it were, in the secret of the eternal? What do you know about these things? He asks his question to show that Nicodemus obviously knows nothing because he says no man hath ascended up into heaven but he that came down from heaven even the son of man which is in heaven in other words he is telling Nicodemus that he is no ordinary man Nicodemus thought he was he is announcing to him that he is the son of man that he is the son of God that he is one who has come from heaven from eternity into this world of time now then that is the beginning of the gospel the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely pivotal, central, primary. 
He says, we speak that which we do know and testify that which we have seen. That's his position. He's an eyewitness. He knows God. He's come from God. He's not repeating things at second hand. He knows. He has seen. He is witnessing. Very well. There I say we must begin. The whole glory and marvel and mystery of the doctrine of the person of the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the things. Where are we, my friends? Are we clear about this? These are the things about which he spoke to Nicodemus. These are the things that are vital to us. Christianity is not just a morality tinged with emotion. Christianity is not just a code of ethics. It's not just a political or a social point of view. No, no. The first thing about it is this. It's concerned with him, the Son of God, who's been in this world. Very well. But it doesn't stop there. That's simply the beginning. And our Lord has put that very perfectly in the account which is given here in verses 9 to 13. But now you see there arises this question. If he is the Son of God, why did he come into this world? What is he doing in this world? He calls himself the Son of Men. He says he has seen that he has heard. But here he is on earth. Here he is as a carpenter. What's he doing here? Why has he come here? These are the questions that inevitably arise in our minds, and our Lord goes on to answer them. That's precisely what he does in these two verses that we are looking at together this evening. Now I would remind you once more that we must keep in our minds what was our Lord's primary and fundamental object in thus speaking to Nicodemus. He is bringing this man to see his own helplessness, his own hopelessness. He's got to cease to be the master of Israel. He's got to come right down and become, as I say, a little child. And our Lord is revealing truth to him that is to stagger him and is to bring him to an end of himself. To make him see that here he's confronted by something that he'll never understand if he lives to be as old as Methuselah. He's got to believe it and accept it because of the one who's saying it to him. Now then, we must hold that in our minds. I'm going to give you doctrine this evening. I'm going to put something before you that the human mind never could have thought of, never did think of. Indeed, it is something at which the human mind has always boggled and stumbled. And it still does so tonight. What is it? Well, look at it as our Lord himself divides it. What does he say to Nicodemus? Well, he tells Nicodemus about himself. As the Savior, as the one who has come into the world to save the world. Now that, of course, was a staggering thing for this man, Nicodemus. You remember what Nicodemus had said about him? He addresses him as rabbi, teacher, master. 
And he goes further and says, We know that thou art a teacher come from God. He didn't mean by that that he believed in the incarnation, but he did recognize that here was a teacher to whom God had given very exceptional power. That's what he believed about him. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Nicodemus, you see, is interested in him. That's why he goes to have the interview. But he thinks of him as a man, as a teacher, and as a miracle worker only. And therefore he wants to ask him questions. He wants to know a little bit more about this. Our Lord at once interrupts, because what he's really going to say to him is this. He says, while it is perfectly true that I am a teacher, and while it is true that I work miracles, you've seen them. I haven't come into the world merely to work miracles. I am not in this world even to teach. I have come to save. I have come about this whole question of salvation, the Savior. Now, you see at a glance that this is of the very essence of this New Testament message. Go back right away to the beginning and to his birth. You remember the scene, don't you? You can see the shepherds watching their flocks by night in the fields. And there they are, just a night like every other night, when suddenly they're awakened and their attention is drawn to some heavenly music. And there they're visited by the angels. And what's the message? Well, the message is this. We are bearers, they say, of glad tidings. What are these glad tidings? The glad tidings are these. Unto you this boy, unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. That's the message. And you see, it's the first announcement that is made to these men after his birth. The babe that has been born in Bethlehem is the Savior. Now this is the whole message of the gospel. Oh, you read these four Gospels and keep your eye on this and you'll find that they suddenly become illuminated before you. It was over this people always stumbled. They didn't really listen to what our Lord was saying. He keeps on saying in some shape or form, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. They were not interested. They were interested in miracles. They were interested in the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. They wanted him to divide the inheritance between two brothers. They wanted him to do a thousand and one things. Of course, they'd acknowledge that he was a great man, the most remarkable teacher, and these miracles were extraordinary. But you see, they wanted him to stop on that level. But he hadn't come to do things like that. He has come to be the Savior. He has come about this question of salvation. Well, what is it? What is this, says someone? Now, before I answer your question, may I ask you a question? As you think about Christianity, do you think of it primarily in terms of salvation? As you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, what's your first thought of him? Is it that he is the Savior? Do you think of him in terms of the message of the angel to the shepherd? Is this your conception of the good news? Is the gospel good news to you primarily? 
Or is it just an ethical or a social or a political way? Is it good news? Is it something that thrills you? The test of that is, you see, does it come as salvation? The message of salvation. What is this, says someone? Well, now that's the thing that our Lord deals with very particularly in these two verses that he addresses to this man Nicodemus. Listen to it. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let me put it in the form of a principle. The Lord Jesus Christ, first and foremost, tells Nicodemus about the need of salvation. Nicodemus had never seen that. As a Jew, he'd never seen it. As a Pharisee, he'd seen it still less. The need of salvation. But that's exactly what our Lord is putting to him by using this strange language. Look at it in terms of the story. Our Lord now is comparing himself and his object in coming into this world with that extraordinary thing that happened way back there in the history of the story of the children of Israel as they were in their pilgrimage between Egypt and the land of Canaan. I read to you those verses out of the 21st chapter of the book of Numbers just now. In order that we might have the background clearly in our minds, it's our Lord speaking, remember, and this is how he compares himself. Now go back across that story, and this is what you find. There are those children of Israel. God has delivered them in a marvelous, in a miraculous manner from the bondage and the captivity of Egypt. And he's leading them in the direction of their promised land. But they were having a somewhat difficult and hard time. They were traveling in a wilderness. I needn't go into the reason for that. Even that was their own fault. But there they are. They're in a wilderness. And it was a difficult place. Not enough food. Nothing to drink. God was feeding them miraculously by means of the manna. But the children of Israel began to murmur and to complain and to grumble. They began to grumble not only against Moses but against God also. They rebelled against God and they said, As he brought us out of Egypt in order to kill us of starvation here in this desert wood to God we stayed in Egypt. And they began talking about the flesh pots of Egypt and the leeks and the garlic and the onions, and they grumbled and complained and rebelled against God. And do you remember what happened? God punished them by sending amongst them fiery serpents. And these serpents bit the people and injected their venom and their poison into them. And there they became desperately ill and large numbers died and it looked as if they were all going to die. And the people were awakened. They realized that all this was happening because of their sin. So they went to Moses and they said, We have sinned against God and against thee. Go and pray to God on our behalf that he may forgive us. And Moses went and prayed to God, you remember. And God told him, he said, Take a brazen serpent and put it on a pole and hold it up before all these people and tell them that anyone who's bitten with a serpent and who's on the point of death if he looks at that brazen serpent, that moment he'll be healed. It's the way I'm appointing to heal them. Tell them to do it. If they do it, they'll be healed. If they don't, they'll die. And so it happened. 
that every one, however desperately ill he might have been, the moment he looked at that brazen serpent, that serpent of brass held up on a pole, he was immediately healed. Now, what the Lord Jesus Christ tells Nicodemus is this. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, as even so, is it plain? Is it clear? It's an exact comparison. He says, I am in this world in a sense to do what that brazen serpent did of old that Moses made and put up on the pole. I've come to do something like that. That's the business of salvation. Well, what does it tell us then? Ah, you see, here is very profound doctrine for us. Here's the first thing. That we are obviously in the same position and the same condition as the children of Israel. Now, that's inevitable. You can't argue against this. It's our Lord's comparison. As, even so. There's the condition of the children of Israel. There, therefore, must be our condition. What is it? Well, isn't it this? We are under the wrath of God because of sin. That's the message. The fiery serpents were sent by God to punish the sin of the Israelites. We, therefore, must be in the same position. We are under the wrath of God because of sin. They sinned. How? They rebelled against God. They put their own desires before his. They put his ways before his. That's rebellion. Isn't that precisely what the Bible tells us? Is the whole condition of the world this evening? Isn't that the cause of the whole tragedy of mankind? Ever since that first sin in the Garden of Eden, man sinned against God. He rebelled. He set his will up against God. And what is the result? God has punished him. He's under the wrath of God. Now let's look at this. This is a part of what our Lord calls the heavenly things. If I have spoken unto you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And here it is. The whole world is under the wrath of God. Oh, but men can't receive that. How shall he receive if I tell you of heavenly things? And the world doesn't. The world hates this above everything else. And yet it's our Lord's own teaching. The world, I say, has a greater objection to this doctrine, this biblical doctrine of the wrath of God, than perhaps of any other single aspect of truth. And yet it is here at the very beginning in the mouth of the Son of God himself. The world, I say, doesn't receive it. It puts it like this. It says, this is unthinkable. It says, if there is a God at all, well, then he must be a God of love. And if he's a God of love, you mustn't speak about his wrath. You can't reconcile wrath and love. The two things are mutually contradictory. No, no, they say, that idea of wrath, it doesn't belong to God at all. And it should never be preached. It isn't true. 
That belongs to paganism. We know that all pagans, they believe in their various gods and they're afraid of them. They're afraid that if they don't worship the sun, it'll fall on top of them. And likewise, the moon and the stars, they're afraid of the spirits in the trees and in stones. It's a whole religion of fear. But they say mankind has outgrown that sort of thing. So we don't believe in the wrath of God. Don't mention it to us. It isn't true. Others say this. Oh, they say that idea of the wrath of God, it may be in the Old Testament. It's the tribal idea of God that the Jews had of old. It's got nothing to do with the New Testament. That's not Jesus' picture of the loving Father. Now, I'm giving you the arguments that are so frequently adduced. The things that are so often said about this. They say it isn't true. We reject that. We can't receive that. God is a loving Father. You see where we find ourselves. If we speak like that, we are still in the position of Nicodemus who says, how can these things be? No, no, this doesn't fit in with my idea. I believe that God is like this and he can't be like that, therefore. You see, the claim is that our minds are so big and so capacious that we can include God quite simply, that we understand everything about God in his love and justice and righteousness. We know all about him and we can pit our minds against the teaching of this book. That's what it comes to. Because, you see, the teaching of this book is very plain and very clear. It is as our Lord talks to Nicodemus about himself as the Savior. In the context of John 3.16, that he says that mankind is exactly like the children of Israel in the wilderness, bitten by the fiery serpents. It is the only explanation of this. There is no other. The conditions are exactly parallel. But, of course, it's not only found here. This teaching is to be found right through the Bible. Go back to the very beginning. Didn't God tell men, The day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt die. And it happened. Right away through, God tells the people of whom we read in that Old Testament that if they break his laws, he will punish them. My dear friends, I'm not standing here to tell you that I understand all this. I'm here to tell you that I know nothing apart from what is revealed in this book. God is infinite. He is absolute. He is eternal. How can I understand God? What do I know about God? What does anybody know about God except what God has been pleased to reveal about himself? And he has revealed himself. He revealed himself to Moses when he gave him the Ten Commandments and the moral law. And there he tells us that he is a God that visits the sins of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation of them that hate him. He is a God who says that if man transgresses his law, he will be punished. Now, I'm not saying that. It's God who says it. It's the revelation that says it. It's running through your Old Testament. You'll get it in the book of Psalms. You'll get it in the message of the prophets. What is the message of these prophets, the great prophets and the minor prophets? Isn't it this? 
that the nation of Israel by its rebellion and its sin is courting disaster. That it's flying in the face of God and his holy laws. And that if it doesn't repent and return to God, it'll end in nemesis and destruction. It's a plea with the people to repent and to come back. Why? Well, because the wrath of God is set against sin and evil. There is no sense in the Old Testament if you reject this doctrine. But as I say, it's not only in the Old Testament. You turn over the pages and you come to the New Testament and you look at that first preacher, John the Baptist. What was his message? This was his message. He preached a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And when he saw certain Pharisees coming amongst the crowd, he looked at them and said, Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He says, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am unworthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will truly purge his floor and gather the wheat into the garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. I'm not asking you to believe what I think. I am just reporting to you the message and the preaching of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Son of God, the Savior, the herald of salvation, the one who'd been sent to prepare and to make smooth the way of the Lord. That's his message. Repent. Why? Well, the day of wrath is coming. God's judgment upon sin. Believe me, my dear friends, when I tell you that I don't like preaching on this doctrine. I'm a man like yourselves. It's not an easy thing to do. But my commission is not to stand here and say what I think. It's to hold this word before you and to expound it. And there it is. That's the preaching of John. Go on to the preaching of our Lord. It's exactly the same. He sends out his disciples and this is what he tells them to preach. He tells men to flee from the wrath to come. It is he who talks about coming on the clouds of heaven to judgment with his holy angels. It is he who talks about a place where the fire is not quenched and where their worm dieth not. It is he who spoke about Dives and Lazarus. It is he who pronounced woes upon the heads of those Pharisees in their sin. It's everywhere in his teaching. And as you go on, you'll find it everywhere. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, this was his preaching, that great sermon on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people were converted and became Christians. This is what Peter said to them. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And the word was with such effect and power that the people cried out saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That was his message. It was equally the message of the Apostle Paul. You'll find it in chapters 13, 14, 17 and 20 of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. He tells the people, that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the whole world in righteousness 
by that man whom he hath appointed, whereof he hath given proof, in that he hath raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an announcement of a day of judgment. Christ is to be the judge. He says himself in the fifth chapter of this gospel according to St. John that the Father has committed all judgment unto him. He is the judge. It's everywhere. You go on to the epistles. Do you know that the Apostle Paul talks about the wrath of God ten times in the epistle to the Romans alone? Do you remember him writing about that great day in the first epistle to the Corinthians? Do you remember what he says in the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5? This is how he puts it. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We must all stand, he says, before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of the things done in the body, whether good or bad, Therefore, therefore, I persuade men. He says, I know something about the terror of the Lord. The same argument. Oh, my dear friends, it's everywhere. You'll read in the epistle to the Ephesians that we're all by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's why the gospel is preached. And the apostle reminds the Thessalonians that they are turned from idols to serve the living God and to believe on his Son, Jesus, whom he had sent from heaven to save us from the wrath to come. It's in the epistle to the Hebrews. Who shall save us? What shall happen to us? If we neglect so great a salvation, never let these things slip, says this man. We are hopeless if we do the wrath of God. And what is the message of the book of Revelation if it isn't this? Well, I mustn't keep you. I've gone through the evidence because I'm anxious that we should all see that this is the peculiar message of Christianity. Christ is the Savior. Well, obviously we need to be saved from something. And what we need to be saved from is the wrath of God. God is the judge of all the earth. He is the everlasting righteous one. And the business of preaching is to announce first and foremost that the whole world lieth guilty before God. Mankind is in the same situation as the children of Israel in the wilderness. God is punishing sin. His wrath is upon sin. And here is the message. There is no meaning in good news apart from that. Why do you call this the gospel? What is a gospel? It's good news. What is the good news? Well, the good news is that there is a way of escape. The wrath of God is upon us and there is a way of deliverance. That's the first thing that our Lord is telling Nicodemus by comparing himself in that way to that brazen serpent that was lifted up upon a pole in the wilderness. You and I are under the wrath of God and because of that we are face to face with eternal spiritual death. Everyone bitten by that serpent died unless he was healed in this way. 
That was physical. That's the comparison. But that is a comparison to illustrate a spiritual truth. And the spiritual truth is this. As they died physically, as the result of their sin, the whole world is dying spiritually because of sin and rebellion against God. The wages of sin is death. I admit very freely that I would have no reason for preaching like this in this pulpit. Were it not that I believe that we are all by birth spiritually dead because of sin, and that unless we are saved, we will go on to eternity in that state of spirit. Spiritual death. The Apostle Paul talks about everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ puts it here like this, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Had you realized, my friend, that by nature you are perishing? That as you are by nature, you are spiritually dead, and that you'll go on like that to all eternity, in a state of misery and unhappiness and wretchedness. That's perishing. Death and everlasting destruction. It's horrible, I know. It's unthinkable, but it's true. That's the whole purpose of the good news. That's why Christ came, to save us out of this. As those people were saved from that physical death, he's come to save men from this spiritual death. Had you realized that that was your position, that you are spiritually dead, and that as you die physically and go on to eternity, you go on to that everlasting, endless spiritual death outside the life of God, a life of mental anguish and spiritual torment without end and without relief. That's the message. And there is only one other thing that he taught about it, it's this. Those Israelites being bitten by the fiery serpents were absolutely helpless. They could do nothing about it. They had no medicines. They had no charms that could deal with this. They were absolutely helpless. They're staggering on their feet. They're dying. And in their desperation, they go to Moses and say, there's nothing. And it is a part of the preaching of the gospel to tell men and women this. That we are all equally helpless spiritually. You cannot give yourself spiritual life. You cannot create within yourself a love of God. You cannot get rid of your sins that you've committed. They're there. And you can't erase them off the book. They're set against you. You can do nothing about appeasing the wrath of a righteous and a holy God. Nothing. We are as helpless as those Israelites. You can live a good life. You can do a lot of good. You can fast and sweat and pray. But don't waste your time. Luther tried it. Wesley tried it. The great saints of the centuries have tried it. And they've ended by saying, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. 
That's what our Lord said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, he says, don't listen, don't think any more about miracles. We're not talking about that. Don't come and ask your learned questions. Don't you see that you're in the position of that Israelite? You've been bitten by the serpent. Sin, evil, you're dying. You're dead spiritually. Don't you see your helpless plight? That's his message. But thank God he doesn't stop there. Having delineated the condition, having diagnosed the ill, having exposed the desperate need of men, he says, I say, that he is the Savior. And he goes on to show the one and only way of salvation. What is it? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What is this nonsense, says someone? What is this, says the modern, sophisticated, educated man? What are you talking about? What's he saying? I've no doubt those were the thoughts of Nicodemus. I imagine that what Nicodemus was saying to himself was something like this. Ah, he said, when he heard the Lord speaking of himself as the Son of Man who had come down from heaven, now this is interesting, I could tell that he was unusual. Is he the Son of God as he's claiming? He was on the point of saying, yes, I like that. But then our Lord says this, Son of God, Messiah... And lifted up as the serpent was lifted up by Moses in the wilderness. He knew what that meant. Our Lord is here referring to crucifixion. A man being nailed to a pole to a tree. And then the pole raised up. Crucifixion. That's what he's talking about. When he talks about being lifted up he means his death. You get exactly the same thing in the 8th chapter and the 28th verse. You get it still more clearly in the 12th chapter of this gospel, in the 32nd verse, uh, where he says, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. This spake he referring to his death. But this is impossible. Nicodemus's idea of the Messiah was that he would come as a great military personage who would found a great army and then lead it against the Roman, Roman Empire that had conquered Palestine and drive out the Roman legions and set himself up as king and then perhaps begin to invade other countries and conquer the whole world and be the greatest military personage that humanity had ever known. That was their idea of Messiah. But this man who claims to be the Messiah is talking about being nailed on a pole and raised up. Oh, the monstrosity of it all! Christ crucified was, as Paul says, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Greeks. Ah, they were very interested in the idea of incarnation, perhaps. Very interested in a great teacher, a miracle worker, and all these things, but crucified, dying on a pole in utter helplessness. It's monstrous. It's impossible. It is still the same, isn't it? Did you notice how even Simon Peter stumbled at it? That's why I read to you that section from the 16th chapter of Matthew's Gospel at the beginning. 
Peter at Caesarea Philippi, our Lord says, whom do men say that I am? And they give the answers. Then he says, but now, who do you say that I am? And Peter ever first stood forward and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Son of God, the Messiah. Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed unto this, but my Father which is in heaven. It was given to him to see that. He now sees, they all see with him, that Jesus is the Son of God. What our Lord had already been telling Nicodemus. But then you remember our Lord began to tell these men who had just confessed him as the Son of God that he would be tried and condemned by the chief priests and the Sadducees and scribes and that he would be put to death and rise again. And Peter of everybody, the man who's just made the great confession about his deity as the Son of God, Peter steps forward and says, Far be it from thee, Lord. This shall not be unto thee. He rejects this idea of death. And our Lord has to say a very severe thing to him. Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Peter couldn't receive this notion of the Son of God dying in order to save, and men still cannot. They'll believe in the deity of Christ. They'll believe his ethical teaching. But they say that blood, that cross, that death, your statement that he died for our sins, it seems immoral. They can't believe it. They can't accept it. And there you see is still the whole trouble. If I have spoken unto you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you heavenly things? It's impossible. If you think that you or I are going to understand this doctrine of the atonement, in a final sense, we are making a grand mistake. Thank God we are not asked to. Here's the comparison. It is by dying he saves us, by dying for us. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so. All they had to do was to look at that brazen serpent. They didn't understand. How does it work? Who could tell? The fact is God says it. God planned it. And it does work. Everyone who looked was healed. And it's like that, you know, if you want this salvation. Don't pit your puny mind against the doctrine of the two natures in the one person. Still less pit it against this amazing doctrine of Christ being made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Thank God there's no need, I say. Here is the way. All these people had to do was to look. And the moment they looked, they were healed. And thank God all you and I have to do tonight is to look. By nature we are under the wrath of God and we can do nothing about it. 
But the Son of God here told Nicodemus, and he's telling you at this moment, that he came into this world to be crucified, to save you from your sins, from your sin and all the dread consequences. He died. He was lifted up on that cross, that pole, in order that you and I need not go to hell. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you believe this, if you believe that the Son of God came from heaven to earth to taste death for you, to die the death that you deserved, to bear the punishment of your sin in his own body on that cross on Calvary's hill, I tell you in the name of God, you shall not perish. You are saved. Your sins are forgiven. Not because you've done anything, but because he's done it all for you. And you simply in your helplessness look to him and cast yourself upon him. And what he says, you believe it because he's saying it. You accept it. You rely upon it. You rest upon it. And we have his own word for saying that as you do so, you are that moment healed from all the consequences of sin. You are pardoned. You are reconciled to God. You become a child of God and an heir of everlasting bliss. That's his own message to Nicodemus. Not miracles, not teaching, but this salvation question. A man's soul is eternal destiny. He has come about that and his way of dealing with it and of solving the problem was to suffer the disgrace, the ignominy, the agony and the suffering and the shame of a death upon a cross, but he has done it. And whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the good news. What wonderful news. Escape from hell and eternal perdition. No perishing. But the enjoyment of everlasting life. Look and live. Amen. Our closing hymn is hymn number 381, in which Martin Luther expresses all this. Out of the depths I cry to thee, Lord, hear me, I implore thee. 381.